Our series title, Worship Matters, has a double meaning. For one, we hope to share each week why worship is important, to give a good reason for it, but then also to break down what are the elements that go into worship, and hopefully by discussing and sharing what's behind them, add and deepen your understanding of that worship. So today, to make the case for why worship's important, I'd like to lift up that from what we have heard for a long time, that worship is simply good for you, that people who go to worship live longer and happier and healthier lives. Now, that's not really new news. That's been around. There's been several studies that backed it up for a number of years. But this week, I came across a study that, that added some new information to that, that truth. Uh, it was put together by Marino Bruce, a professor at Vanderbilt University. He, along with nine other researchers across the country, interviewed, studied, 5,449 participants between the ages of 45 and 60. And they studied the impact of worship upon them, uh, also looked and broke down some things that added some new information. They discovered that people that go to worship of any kind, whether it's church, synagogue, or mosque, or other houses of worship, that they reduced the mortality rate by 55%. And they discovered that those persons who do not attend worship have twice as much of a chance to die prematurely than those who do go to church. Now, what was new about this study was they worked intently to separate out the factor of social support, because that's been the long-held assumption that worship's good for us because we experience community and good relationships, and those relationships keep us happy and involved with life. That is true, but they separated out that factor and found there's some other things about worship that make us happier and healthier. One was what he called the, the compassion factor, that when we come, we're taught to have empathy for others, to join in in helping others, just like the crop walk video talked about, that that does something for us. It encourages us, makes us feel better about ourselves. And the other factor he called the holiness factor, not that it makes us pure and holy, but being connected with something higher than ourselves has value in itself. And those things together make us want to eat better. It causes us to live healthier because we feel better about ourselves. Now, my guess is you, you could probably add some things to that study. I, I know myself, there's a couple things that worship does for me. For one thing, I've noticed about worship that when I go, my problems which seem about this big on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, come Sunday after I worship, they, they're still there, but they're about this big. Anyone else feel that? Somehow being in the presence of an all and sovereign God, it just makes those problems shrink in comparison. And the other thing I'd say is true for me is that I can be incredibly self-centered sometimes. Just ask my wife. And when I come to worship, it causes me to look at my relationships, look at those events in my life through the eyes of God, and it forces me to be other-centered. And so all of a sudden I see things a little bit differently than I did before. And so that makes my relationships better and stronger as well. All these things, I think, go, and the bottom line is healthy, to be healthy, worship is a good part of a life that you want to lead. Now, let's look specifically at sacraments today, which seems fitting on World Communion Sunday. And I want to look first at uh, that of how many sacraments are there? Now, we have any Catholics or former Catholics among us? Okay. How many sacraments do we have in the Catholic Church? 
Seven, that's right. Can you name them? That's always a good trick. So we got baptism, communion, confession, confirmation, marriage, last rites, and ordination. That's seven. Good job. That's some good recovering Catholics I've heard them describe before. <laughs> Not looking to you, Joe. Here. Well, in the Protestant church, we believe in two sacraments. Our rationale for that is they, baptism, communion are the two that we find in the scriptures, and they show Jesus instituting them. Now, Catholics would argue that, well, Jesus may not have expressly instituted these, but they are implied, implicit, not only through him or through the apostles that follow. Whether you believe in two or seven, I'm not sure how important that is. The interesting thing you can ask is in the early church, they didn't have the word sacrament because that's Latin that came along later. The Greek word that was translated into sacramentum was the word mysterion, which means mystery. That's where we get our English word mystery. And I'd suggest to you in maybe lesser or greater forms that in all these ways, God's grace can be found and experienced in a mysterious way. Let me focus on our two today, baptism and Holy Communion. With baptism, you get two primarily different understandings that have two issues to them. Uh, do we believe in adult baptism versus infant baptism? And do we believe that you have to be fully immersed or does the amount of water really matter that much? Those that would argue that you have to wait until the age of accountability, until you're adult to make that decision for yourself, see the act of baptism as the sealing of the covenant of salvation. <clears throat> it's your <clears throat> excuse me, response of God reaching out to you and accepting his grace, and you make that decision and step forward into that. That's certainly valid. <clears throat> There's scriptures <clears throat> excuse me, that can back that up. They'd also argue that the root word for baptismo is immersion. But also we can make a case at the other direction. Those who believe that infant baptism is valid, that it's not one that you have to be fully understanding of that decision, would, would share these reasons. First of all, they would say that, that biblically we have the example of the Hebrew act of circumcision where a child is brought into the Israelite faith after eight days after birth through that act of circumcision. Appropriate story, Dick. I bet Jerry didn't know he was going to be that much a part of the service today. <laughs> Secondly, we'd mentioned that in the book of Acts, we have more than one example where the whole household was baptized when they came to faith. Acts 16, verses 32 to 34 share that. Also, Jesus said in Matthew, let the children come to me. And the act of baptism is a way of expressing that. Also, infant baptism is the public, public declaration that God's unmerited love is given to all persons. And God's grace can only come from God, and the helplessness of an infant strongly symbolizes this. In an infant baptism, to suggest that baptism is not appropriate would say that the church is excluding children from the family of God. So we can make that case. I think it's really easy sometimes to get legalistic about the sacraments, uh, in the nine Methodist Church, we tend to discourage 
rebaptism, where somebody's baptized as a child and then chooses because they've had a dramatic conversion experience, want to be rebaptized. We we often suggest that they have uh, a sacrament. It's not really a sacrament, but a reenactment for the renewal of baptism, where we sprinkle a little water on them and call them to remember their baptism and be thankful. But you know, sometimes exceptions have to be made. I had a case where one woman had come to me, been baptized as a child, and she had gone through so much in her life, allowed herself to be used and abused so many times that she needed that sense of a rebirth, of a renewal. And so we made the arrangements and we had her fully immersed that she could leave behind the past and start over once anew. But I think an infant baptism can just be as valuable and special. I love how after we baptize the child, we carry them through the congregation. We declare that they're now part of the family of God and that you have a responsibility in raising them spiritually. When we do that, I just sense God speaking through the Holy Spirit in the form of that dove that, that came when Jesus was baptized who had no need to be baptized from sin. And what did the voice say? Behold my child with whom I'm well pleased. Baptism is a very special sacrament. Let's turn to Holy Communion. I love communion. I love practicing. I love that concrete expression of, of God's grace. You know, at the 11 o'clock service, we offer communion every Sunday. And we, we offer it at the back of the sanctuary in order to allow room at the front where we have candles for people to light and the chance to spend time in prayer. So we keep the crowd away so people can have some peace as they spend that time in prayer. And it's, it's all optional. And what I find intriguing is that almost every Sunday, just about everybody that comes chooses to take communion. They don't have to. There's nothing that funnels in that way. Just people do because it means so much. One of my favorite things is watching an, an adult explain to a child the meaning of baptism and see them kneeling down and sharing with them because it's, it's for them one of the few concrete things we do in church. And so they're already being educated about what Christ has done for us. They're seeing in tangible ways what the grace of God is all about. Now, the biggest issue with communion is who should take it. If you're Catholic, most of the time a priest is not going to give you communion unless you're already Catholic. If you're Lutheran and some other denominations, they would expect you to go through confirmation because that's part of that age of accountability that you know what you're doing before you take communion. And still I find others who just of their own volition will choose not to take communion because there might be something going on in their life that's just not quite right. There might be a sin they haven't fully overcome and so they just don't feel right. And so when they read this passage that we shared with you today, it makes them nervous. Especially those verses 28 through 30, examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup for all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That sends a little shiver down your spine, doesn't it? But let's put this in context. The issue that Paul's speaking to is very specific to the Corinthians. Back then, when they practiced the sacrament of communion, it was shared along with a common meal. They met in house churches. They gathered together and they'd each bring their own food to that occasion as they ate. And it was kind of like bringing your own picnic lunch, you might say. 
And of course, there was quite a disparity in income levels in that church. You had some that were very well-to-do, and they'd bring their lavish and rich food and, and often plenty of wine. Others might bring just their meager offerings. Some were slaves. Some were widows. They didn't have much to share. And so they eat this meal in front of each other. God hadn't invented the United Methodist pitch-in yet. You'd think they'd just share the food, but they didn't for some reason. And so what was supposed to bring unity was bringing disunity. And so when Paul says to discern the body, he's not talking about our own personal bodies or our own souls. He's talking about discerning the body of Christ. Be aware and conscious of those around you and what creates this division. Because this sacrament should bring us together. If you have trouble with that, let me suggest a couple things to you. If you're wrestling with something you don't think is quite right and you fear you're not taking communion with the right attitude, a couple things to remember. First of all, who did Jesus share that first communion with? The disciples, among whom was Judas, who was to be about to betray them, Peter, who would deny him three times, and the rest of the disciples who would scatter like the wind when he was arrested. Not exactly people that got their act together. And still, he shared that first communion with them. Something else you might consider. I, I've noticed this among a lot of you seasoned churchgoers here. We share communion by intention, which means a piece of bread's torn off and given to you. And I love watching when seeing people come over and they have their hands cupped together like this. You know, that's really a prayer posture. That's a way that you're trying to bring the right attitude in which you know that this is a means of God's grace, nothing of which I've earned, and so I offer my hands out to receive what God has given. That might be helpful to you. There are other ways to do it. It's not the only way to do it, but it's a really neat way to receive what God has given to us through the sacrament of Holy Communion. I hope as we discuss these that these sacraments will mean more to you. You know, the Latin sacrament Meant means to take action. And so what we're doing whenever we celebrate communion, whenever we celebrate baptism, is we're acting out in concrete ways what we already believe. Christ has already died for us. We know that, but this is the way to help us feel it. We know a child is already loved by God as a part of his family from the moment of birth, but this is the way we declare that we believe that to be so. May the sacraments mean more to you through God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, please bless what we're about to do as we join with Christians all over the world. May they experience your many blessings through Christ who's made us one and made us whole. Amen.